Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance, and defining happiness and success. My name is Graham Olcott. I'm your host for the show, and on this episode, I'm talking to Marie Forleo. So the show is called Beyond Busy, and this conversation with Marie was a couple of weeks ago, and it was a really busy day for me personally. So I ran a workshop at Cass Business School in the morning, early on a Tuesday morning, and then I had to run across town in London to the offices of Penguin Books, where Marie was, and um, I couldn't get through because it was all closed for Extinction Rebellion protests and stuff. So I ended up having to sort of run halfway along the Strand to Penguin's office there, uh, did the interview with Marie, and then went back and did another workshop at Cass Business School in the afternoon, and then had to get trained to Worthing and did an evening event for Action for Happiness, our friends over at Action for Happiness, uh, in Worthing in the evening. So it was a huge, long day for me, uh, very apt to be reporting back on that day on a podcast called Beyond Busy, because that was certainly a very busy day for me. Um, but I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. So we talk about Marie's book, Everything is Figure Outable. And uh, I think the title of that really speaks for itself. But we've got some really interesting conversation in here that I think you're going to really enjoy. And um, I was just really bowled over by just Marie's energy and the way she has gone about launching this book is just phenomenal. So um, she is a bit of a force of nature and uh, we'll be talking about some of that stuff in this conversation. Um, if you are interested in productivity and you're interested in getting your own productivity systems up to date, if you want to take on that productivity ninja approach that I talk about in my book, Productivity Ninja, um, then I'm doing a masterclass event. It's not until February, but we're taking bookings right now. So it's Thursday, the 27th of February, 2020. Can't believe I'm saying that. And uh, it's all day at the Business Design Centre in Islington, um, just up the road from Angel Tube Station. So if you want to come along to that, you can go to the Eventbrite website and just put in Graham Alcott or Graham Alcott Productivity or whatever, and uh, you'll find the tickets there. So if you want to come to the Masterclass, I'd love to see you there. It's a full day. It's immersive. We work on your real stuff. So it's not a day out of work. It's a day doing the work. And you will end that day with clarity, perspective, peace of mind, and a real sense that you've got everything under control with the work that you're doing. And really just the whole run through of everything that's in the, in the Productivity Ninja book uh, implemented in a day with me. So that's the 27th of Feb, Thursday. It's um, full day at the Business Design Tent Centre in Islington. Hopefully see you there. So let's get into this conversation with Marie Forleo. I'll talk a little bit more at the end about what I've been up to as well in this little break, this little kind of hiatus for Beyond Busy. But let's get into it. So here we are, uh, just rushing in, setting up the podcast gear in the Strand. Uh, Marie had these, uh, it was a sort of podcast studio thing there, huge microphones sort of in front of our faces. And Marie's like, oh, we don't need to use this stuff. We can just roll it. So um, yeah, we put my little clip on mics in there and just kind of ignored the big microphones and stands and all the gear and uh did it did it my way which is the lo-fi way it's the particularly you know clip the microphones to your person and forget that they're even there kind of way which i really like so uh here we are here's my conversation with marie folio um so let's make a start so i'm here with marie folio it's amazing to to meet you and uh thanks for fitting me into your very packed schedule oh, um, here honor. in London. Thank you. Uh, you were with Chris Evans yesterday, so um, you've been sort of darting around London doing lots of interviews. What, what was Chris like? I've never met him. I grew up with Chris Evans, right? Because like TFI Friday, the anarchic Friday evening show was like a big thing here in the UK. Um, so what was he like to interact with and what was, what was his interest in, in your work? He was fantastic. He's got such great energy. He's so warm and so playful. And one of the things that struck me the most was how committed he is to personal development and self-development. Like mm. I was sitting uh, out in the area where you hang out before you go in. Okay, yeah. And I noticed all these books that he had and he was talking through them. And then he read a passage about um, perfectionism and uh, in our book, which progress, not perfection. Yeah. And you could just feel his genuine passion for these ideas and these topics and to get them out to a wider audience. So I absolutely adored him. Nice. Yeah. And tell me about London. So are you here for a week? What's your... Just under a week. So we yeah. arrived um, on Saturday morning and I go back to New York City on Thursday and we've been having a blast. You know, sometimes 
when you travel for work, you just kind of come in and you do what you got to do and you get right out. But we tried to yeah. build in a little bit of a grounding time. So both Saturday afternoon and Sunday, um, there was a little bit of press, but it was a lot of being able to just tootle around London yeah, right. <laughs> and see yeah. things and have great meals and just adjust to the time zone and enjoy the people. What's, what's been your favorite highlight of London so far? I'll tell you. There's a couple things. One is, and this is interesting, I've had different people be like, oh, you know, when you go over to the UK, people are a little more reserved there. <laughs> and, you know, because I tend to be a, a big energy kind of, kind of person and like maybe you have to you know just don't don't feel bad if people don't really respond to how you normally are and that has not been my experience at all i feel like everyone is so game to be playful they're Mm, so ready they're so fantastic so all of the kind of little ideas that people have shared with me about folks's energy here and like oh they're a bit more skeptical or a bit more cynical and that just hasn't been my experience but then you are meeting like helen from amazing if and chris evans and me and all you know these kind of uh but i think person development folks and people who are maybe a bit more open to the sort of american style of things because we we take a lot of influence from that particularly in kind of self-help and business books and that kind of thing. Right? Yeah, but I think in, in the United States as well, there are certainly cynical people and yeah, skeptical people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, sure. you know, I tend not to try. I'm, I'm usually um, a repellent to those kind of folks because <laughs> right. I'm like, they're like, they can't handle me, I can't handle them, and that's fine. <laughs> well, you should meet my dad and then you, maybe it'll change your perception yeah, of okay. British people. I like it. Um, so you're here, like I guess, principally to promote um, everything is figureoutable. Yes. And, uh, uh, really raise the awareness of that book. So um, let's talk about that first. I really want to talk about B-School and everything you've achieved with that as well, which is uh, just kind of mind-blowing. Thank you. Um, but let's start with the book. So um, everything is figureoutable. Uh, you start the book by telling the story of um, like your mum's little Tropicana radio, and that was how you had uh, kind of first come across this phrase and it really resonated with you. So do you want to just tell that story yeah. and, what, and what it means to you now, more importantly? Absolutely. So my mom is this really interesting character. She's about 5'3". She um, has the tenacity of a bulldog. She looks like June Cleaver, which mm-hmm. is this very 1950s character. And uh, she curses like a truck driver. And <laughs> she grew up in the projects of Newark, New Jersey and learned really by necessity how to stretch a dollar bill around the block okay. like five times. Yeah. Uh, one of my fondest memories as a kid was sitting around our kitchen table on Sundays cutting out coupons together because she loved to teach me all the ways that our family could save money. And she also taught me the fact that brands would send you these little free gifts if you saved up your proofs of purchase. And one of her most prized possessions was this tiny little Tropicana orange radio that she got from Tropicana orange juice for free. So it looked like an orange, had a red and white straw sticking out of the side. That's the antenna. (laughs) And this thing traveled with her everywhere. And so as a kid, I knew I could find her somewhere around the yard or somewhere around the house by listening for the sound of that radio. So one day I come home from school and I'm walking down the street and I hear the radio off in the distance. And I look up And I see my mom perched very precariously on the roof of our two-story house. And I was like, Mom, what are you doing (laughs) up there? Are you okay? And she yelled down to me. She's like, Ray, I'm fine. The roof had a leak. I called the roofer. He said it would be at least 500 bucks. I said, screw that. I'm going to do it myself. So another day I come home from school and I hear the little radio in the back of the house. And I followed the sound and my mom is in the bathroom. And I pushed open the door and there's dust particles in the air and there's pipes sticking out of the wall. And it looked like an explosion went off. And I'm like, Mom, are you okay? what's going on? She's like, I'm fine. You know, the tiles had some cracks in them. I didn't want the bathroom to get moldy. So I'm retiling the bathroom. So you have to understand my mom is high school educated. This is the 80s. So this is a pre-internet, pre-YouTube You can't just look up on this stuff on YouTube and figure out all the instructions. That's exactly right. And so I never knew what I'd find my mom doing, but I knew I could find her by the sound of the radio. Mm. So one day, uh, it was in the fall, and I came home late from school, and it was dark out, and it was a little eerie. And as I approached the house, I could sense that something was different. The house was dark, and it was completely silent, which in an Italian-American home is not a good sign. (laughs) And I go inside, and I hear nothing, and I'm wondering, where is my mom? Where is the sound of the radio? All of a sudden, I hear these clicks and clacks, and they were coming from the kitchen, and I followed that sound, and I see my mom hunched over the kitchen table, which looked like an operating room. There was screwdrivers and um, electrical tape, and then spread out in front of her was about a dozen pieces of a completely dismantled Tropicana orange radio. And I was like, Mom, are you okay? What's going on? That's your favorite thing. She's like, oh, Ray, I'm fine. No big deal. The antenna was a little off, and the tuner was busted, so I'm fixing it. And I stood there, Graham, watching her just work her magic like she always did. And 
I finally asked the question that I've always should have asked, which was this. Hey, mom, how do you know how to do so many different things that you've never done before, but nobody's showing you how to do it? And she put down her screwdriver and she cocked her head to the side and she's like, Ray, what are you talking about? Nothing in life is that complicated. If you just roll up your sleeves, you get in there and you do it. Everything is figure outable. And I just stood there, like my jaw hit the floor, and I was like, whoa, like that's <laughs> like the coolest idea ever. And I just kept repeating it to myself. And I really saw her throughout my entire childhood and my dad as well just embody this notion. You know, anytime there was a problem, it was like, no problem, we're going to figure it out. We'll find a way to make it through this. And that phrase has really been the single most powerful driving force of my entire life. Like yeah. when I was in high yeah. school, it got me out of a toxic and physically abusive relationship. In college, it helped me get these rare work-study positions, which helped me pay for school. I'm the first in my family to go to college. It's helped me land every job I've ever had from working on Wall Street, publishing at Condé Nast, to selling glow sticks on the floor of mega clubs, to uh, becoming one of the world's first Nike elite dance athletes, despite having no formal dance training, to starting my business at 23 and growing it into what we have today. So I still use that phrase every single day of my life. And I feel like it's the one thing that if I could really articulate it and put this idea into words that could possibly help the most people out of everything that I've done. And I've heard you say that this is the idea that for you, you want to kind of leave behind. And, yes. And that's like your legacy is to really Absolutely. Make, make that phrase something that people really resonate with and, and use. And use, yeah. for sure. You know, I was like struggle. I'm not uh, the type of writer who finds it really easy. I find it really challenging and difficult, and especially doing it at the same time as running the business yeah. and keeping the show going. I and know so, a bit about that. <laughs> you know a, little, a lot about that, Graham. Smaller business than yours, I have to it, say. But, but uh, it doesn't matter. Like when you're growing something, yeah. when you have all these things in motion, also fitting in a book project, which is huge, it, it's a yeah. lot. And I was. Uh, struggling to write the manuscript one day at a restaurant in New York and I ran into my friend Toby who's the CEO of Shopify and we've known each other for a bit and he's like what are you working on and I told him about the book and he's like Marie why are you writing a book like the business is fine it's growing your show's doing great like why are you taking on this project and I told him I said Toby this is the honest truth if I were to walk out of here and get hit by a bus tomorrow this is the one idea I'd want to leave behind and if I can do a good job articulating all of the components of it then I can kind of ride off to my next cosmic adventure feeling very satisfied <laughs> with nice. my time here on earth yeah so. and obviously here on Beyond Busy we're all about kind of thinking about purpose and what how you define success and yes. that feels like a really clear uh, and compelling yes. um, sort of definition of your success right like this is the thing that above all else I want to through to people and, and, and to leave behind yes. at, at some point as well. Um, love that. Um, you talk about the three rules. Yes. Um, so, so the three rules of everything is figureoutable are. Yeah, well, yeah. and I, to put, set this in some context, you know, um, understandably, folks can be skeptical. Yeah, like, yeah. Is yeah. everything figureoutable? Are you really saying that? Because it's quite a bold claim. And quick story, I was um, out to brunch again in the early parts of working on this project, and a friend of mine had brought her 10-year-old um, son to brunch. And they were like, Marie, what are you working on? A book called Everything is Figureoutable. And the 10-year-old piped up, no, it's not. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, tell me more. Like, what do you believe is not figureoutable? And it was a great moment. And he's like, well, you know, we humans can't grow working wings out of our back and fly away. And I was like, well... That's true as of this moment, I said, but you do know we human beings can indeed fly. Yeah. And he was like, oh, he's like, you're right. I guess you're right. He's like, well, what about this one? You know, we can't bring uh, my dog that died a few years ago back from the dead. And I was like, well, that's true as of right now, but scientists are working on cryogenics and people have been cloning their dogs. And he's like, mm. oh, I guess that's right. So from a scientific perspective, just because something hasn't been figured out as of now, that is not proof in and of itself that it is not figureoutable. Right. I, mean, I guess the whole premise of science is it's driven by the notion of everything being figureoutable. That's right. right. Like, otherwise, science just stays static and we don't know anything new. Correct. And in fact, um, I love finding really great quotes. And when I was researching the book, I found this phenomenal quote from a British quantum theorist named David Deutsch, who wrote a book called The Beginning of Infinity. And he says, everything that is not forbidden by the laws of nature is achievable given the right knowledge. Mm. Um, and so, 
conversations like that inspired me to create a set of rules, which is really a mental container that allows us to use this idea and this philosophy for its intended purpose, which is to help us create change in our own lives, and then by proxy, meaningful change around us. So here are the three rules of the figureoutable philosophy. Rule number one, all problems or dreams are figureoutable. Rule number two, if a problem isn't figureoutable, it isn't a problem, it's a fact of life, like death, gravity, certain laws of nature. Rule number three, and this is the big one, you may not care enough to solve a particular problem or reach a particular dream, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Go find something you do care deeply about and you're willing to commit to and go back to rule number one. And so that really gives us a framework through which we can let the cynical or skeptical mind rest for a minute and not go into fantastical, you know, kind of um, theoretical, what about this or what about that? And just stay with this notion and use it to help yourself create real change. Yeah. Um, Just want to come back to that quote, David Deutsch quote, just for a moment, because sort of inherent within that quote is a really interesting question to ask you, which is, was there something that felt like it was absolutely unachievable that was the one thing that you figured out? And the one thing that you, before you worked on it, before you started working on it, you thought, this is just never going to happen. This can't be something that I can figure out. And then you did. If I'm being completely honest with you, the answer to that is no. Because I feel like I got this message, this notion that everything is figureoutable at such an early age that it's driven my whole life. And so when I have really wanted to do something, and I'll give you an example, launching this book, for example, I had a notion in my heart. I was like, I want to do something different. I want it to be really fun. I want it to be really joyful. I've been journaling about the launch of the book for quite frankly years. Mm. And um, what came to me in my heart was this idea. What if a Beyonce concert and a TED Talk had a baby and then threw a block party? (laughs) This is what I want to do. And I brought this idea to my publisher in the United States. And I'm telling you, Graham, there was like silence on the other end of the phone. It was very awkward. (laughs) And um, they were like, oh, we've never heard anyone do something like this before. I said, guys, don't worry about it. I've got this. I've never thrown a concert before. I had no idea how we were going to do it. But something deep inside me said we could figure it out. Mm. Now, I'm not making any promises about the quality of such thing or if we could actually pull off the scale and the scope and the standards that I had in my mind, but I knew we would be able to somehow figure it out. And it was one of the most challenging things I've ever done. We worked with people that have done concerts for J-Lo, for Demi Lovato, for Kanye. We had some of the most professional crews in the world and we pulled off something. It was honestly one of the most satisfying things I've ever done. So back to your original Mm -hmm. question, um, I've had tough challenges that have been really thorny to figure out, you know, some that have taken almost a decade, but I keep going because I don't question this belief. This is real for me. So you've basically lived without doubt, right? So Well, I have a ton of self-doubt. Yeah, okay. So self-doubt for me is present pretty much all the time. In fact, Mm. there was a... um, we did a behind the scenes video of that Beyonce concert meets a TED talk has a block party because I wanted to show people that you can be filled with stress, self-doubt and fear and still move ahead. Yeah. So I have no doubt that everything is figureoutable. I sometimes doubt my own abilities, but I don't think that even if I fail or fall on my face, that's not the end of the story. That's just one attempt or two mm. attempts or three yeah. attempts. Obviously, you know, this book and pulling that off, that's yeah. incredible. Obviously, B-School... Um, so you seem to have a good knack of getting over that self-doubt and making things happen. So what, do you have some kind of secrets to that or kind of hard and fast rules about how to deal with your own narratives? There's a lovely line in the book, actually, uh, beliefs are the hidden scripts that run our lives, which I just really liked. So maybe part of the question here is how do you look at those beliefs and how do you look at those kind of hidden scripts and kind of turn them around or turn them into the thing that makes it achievable? Like how do you deal with your own trust trust on your own kind of self-knowledge yeah for me it rests always in action because i find that the narrative in my head that says you're not good enough you're not smart enough you don't have what it takes that feels like it's pretty consistent and also pretty universal you know from working with people now for over two decades and from having fantastic candid conversations with friends and people that are very high achievers across all different disciplines, I find that when people are honest, they realize, wow, I'm still scared. 
I still have doubt whether or not I'm going to be, be able to pull off this next project or do X, Y, or Z. But the people that actually create things or achieve things seem to be able to stay in action, including those conversations. So for me, the way that I work is just like, you know what? Everything is outable. Clarity comes from engagement, not thought, which means that I'm going to get clear on where my skill set is by doing something so that I can see the gap between what my abilities are right now and where they might need to get to in order for me to pull off X, Y, or Z. But just because I don't have the understanding or the experience or the discipline or the skill set at this moment, that doesn't mean I can't get there. Does that make sense? Mm, It makes sense. I did uh, A few years ago, I did this whole year of extreme productivity experiments. And one of the things I did was uh, if I was stuck with anything, I had to make the decision in the moment by the throw of dice, mm. <clears throat> right? So what was really interesting about that experiment was, so you're stuck on something, you have to come up with either two options or three options or six options and make something happen out of it. And what I learned was a couple of things. One is that any action beats inaction. Yes. Right? So just getting started, part of that is about seeing where the gaps are, like you just said, and part of it is also just seeing if it feels like the right thing to do. And then you can always row back on that and change it later. But the fact is you've got something to work with. I always feel like in my own head, I, I like to have something to disagree with. And then I know what I'm going to do as a result of it. The other thing that was really interesting about the dice thing was um, it really separated ego from the equation. So the dice was, was making the decision. So if I got it wrong, I couldn't blame myself. I just thought, oh, well, the, the dice decided. And so, right? <laughs> and so that was a really interesting thing, just an exercise in recognizing how much of our decision-making is built on our own fears and our own sets of beliefs and ultimately our own ego. And yeah. if you just treat these things as moving one step forward. That's right. It changes the game, right? Absolutely. And it's like an experiment. I feel like, you know, in a business context, when we're ever moving into a new zone, well, first of all, stepping back, 99.9% of what you need to do to grow your business or your career or your livelihood is going to be outside your comfort zone and probably something that you've never done before. So it's going to kick up all of those feelings of inadequacy and self-doubt. And if you can recognize that as part and parcel for growth, like this is inherent to the growth game Mm. and you don't make yourself wrong you don't take it personally you're like oh this is just a signal that i'm growing i think you can depersonalize it to your point about uh having the dice oh it's it's not me it's the dice so if you feel and hear those voices inside like you're not good enough you're too old you're too young who knows again it's just going to keep spitting up all of these messages and go oh this probably means i'm in a growth zone this is awesome this is Mm. a signal to keep moving ahead i think you can train yourself to stay in action nice um the other bit of the book that I really wanted to talk about links on from that quite nicely, um, which is you talk about these rules of how to start before you're ready. Yes. Um, and the three rules, maybe you can talk a little bit about about these. Uh, avoiding procrastination that's disguised as research. Yes. Right? Um, getting skin in the game and then valuing growth and learning over that comfort and certainty, which is kind of where you were, you were going there. But yeah, that uh, how to start before you're ready. Why do you think that was an important thing to put in there because i've seen a pattern with all of us myself included where we can tell ourselves this nasty little lie that says i'm not ready yet i'm not ready yet to go on that interview or to send that email or to make that pitch or to think that i'm ready to do this creative project and again i've seen it in myself over the years and whenever i've been able to bypass that little nasty lie that says i'm not ready yet extraordinary growth happens that would have never happened otherwise. So a quick story on that. There was a point in my career where I had my coaching business going. I was bartending and waiting tables to keep the roof over my head, keep the money flowing in. And I was also building a career in dance and fitness. This was like in my mid twenties. And, um, I have no formal dance training and I just started teaching my first ever hip hop classes in New York City. So I was totally green, didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I was so excited because I love dance, I love music, and I'm very passionate about physical activity. My first class, the it's all over and a woman approaches me and uh, she says, you know, you're really good at what you do. I work for MTV. We have this position open for a choreographer slash producer. You should really come in and audition. So in my head, Graham, it's like, You're not ready for this Mm, yet. You just started. This was your first class. You have no experience. You're totally green. Why couldn't this opportunity come, you know, a year later or two years later when you could really hold your own? But at that point, I still had the um, I had the other voice in my head saying, you're not getting any younger. You've loved MTV since you were a kid. This opportunity could change everything. And so I remember saying yes to going on that audition. 
I remember standing in front of the Viacom building in Times Square, so nervous that I wanted to throw up. My palms were sweaty, but I pushed myself through all of that insecurity, did the audition, and wound up nailing that gig, which meant that I was going to have months of experience as a choreographer slash producer. I was still terrified working that job. I was basically directing people that had almost a decade more experience in dance than I did. But so much of what I learned in that short period of time led to extraordinary growth, doing fitness videos, eventually becoming a Nike athlete, all of these things that would have not happened had Mm. I not started before I was ready. And I've seen that in so many other areas of my life where I've just given myself permission to dive into the deep end. And yeah, it's a little messy. Yeah, I might make flops or mistakes. I'm certainly not going to be perfect. But the upside so outweighs the downside. So... Yeah, I often say to people, you know, if I'm coaching people or whatever, and it's a question about growing a business or entrepreneurialism, it's like, okay, if you say yes to the client and then go away and and sort of panic behind the scenes, it's amazing what you'll fix, right? It's yeah. amazing what will come together if you just, can you do that? Yes, we definitely can. <laughs> and then just off the back of that, good things will start to happen. Right? For sure. Um, let's talk about B-School then. So you built this this hugely successful business. Um, do you want to just firstly I've got a couple of friends who are B-schoolers so um, they were really excited that I was coming to meet you Um, and so I'd love you to just give a bit of background for people who don't know B-school and want to maybe just check it out and interact with it just uh, just what that's all about and and the kind of business model for how you work. So I think it's really fascinating. For sure. So B-School is online business school for modern entrepreneurs who want to make money and make a difference. The reason I created this program was because when I first started my business back in the early 2000s, um, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I didn't have an MBA. I was tens of thousands of dollars in debt. So I had to kind of learn from the ground up what this new world of digital marketing was. Mm. I was doing email marketing back in 2001. I was creating content back then. And so I would go often to as many business conferences that I could go to to just try and understand how to be a successful business owner. And I got the message very early on that understanding sales and marketing was paramount. You know, no matter what you're doing, if you're a designer, if you're a a masseuse, if you're an architect, uh, if you're a musician, that, you know, in order to be successful at what you do, sales and marketing is everything. Cut to me being at several business conferences and essentially looking around the room and going like, wow, 99.9% of the people in here are men. Um, A lot of the folks that I was exposed to, quite honestly, at that time, they would talk about customers as though they were nothing more than numbers on the bottom of a balance sheet. There was not a lot of heart. There was not a lot of soul or talk about values or integrity. Um, There wasn't a lot of fun or humor or even from an aesthetic perspective, a lot of attention given to how the learning materials were presented. And I was like, there is such a big gap here. Simultaneously, I was also growing my um, fitness and dance career and my coaching business. And I would have a lot of women come up to me and go like, how are you doing all this? And I would tell them, it's because I understand sales and marketing. Mm. And they would say, oh, I want to do my own thing, but sales and marketing, that's for someone else. I need to find a partner to do that. Or I don't want to feel like a used car salesman, or that's not my skill set. And I would want to shake people because I'm like, if you don't get sales and marketing, that thing that you want to do is never going to get off the ground. Mm-hmm. And so I'd heard enough of those stories and had enough of these experiences. I say, you know what? I want to create a program that teaches people how to start and grow a small business from a place of integrity, from a place of values, and teach them what I now call modern marketing, which is the form of marketing where it's rooted in the best of your humanity, not the worst. So it's about generosity. It's about compassion. It's about empathy. It's about helping people solve problems far before you ever ask them for money. So all of these ideas, I said, you know, I bet I can make a difference to a lot of folks who want to start their own thing, but they're terrified of that bit. So we started B-School over 10 years ago. Um, It's an eight-week program. It's all delivered online. And we've had over 55,000 graduates from, I think it's over 141 countries at this point. So everyone from, you know, solo entrepreneurs to people that have been serial entrepreneurs and have started multi-million dollar businesses. So there's a huge range of diversity in terms of the size and scale of business owners. But I think the one thing that we have in common across all of B-School is people that want their business to be a force for good. And they want to be able to express their unique personality, their life experiences, and their desire to make a difference in a way that feels really good and have their sales and marketing be effective. Yeah, and if I think about a couple of people I know who um, have been through that program, one thing that stands out with both of them as characters 
um, and in their sort of websites and marketing materials. It's just this whole sort of um, articulation of their values and also articulation of really speaking to the heart of who their customer is. So yes. not just the logical head, but actually just, you know, like looking at those um, emotion, emotional needs and, and, and what people really need from any kind of work interaction, whether it's coaching, whether it's a service, whatever it might be. So is that something that, do you think people are really attracted to that within you? Is that something that you're inherently trying to uh, sort of drive into people's version of sales and marketing, like that kind of modern marketing approach is about um, being very kind of heart-driven rather than just head-driven? Is, is that Completely. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if we look at this purely from a financial perspective, people buy with their hearts and emotions, mm, not yeah. their head. So all sales are an emotional decision, whether you want to recognize that or not. And we justify what we buy with our logic. So to go at it from this point alone, you are leaving so much money on the table. So as a complete looking at this purely from a financial perspective, it's the wrong formula to go for. But then when we look at it from a fulfillment perspective and we look at it from wanting to have our livelihood and the thing we pour so much of our time and energy into, which is our businesses, have that actually feel good so you're not burned out at the end of the day. It's about human connection. It's about service and generosity. So for me, it's like win, 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 win all over the place. Mm-hmm. As an entrepreneur, you're going to reach people. You're going to have higher conversions. You're going to have higher customer satisfaction and return rates if you speak to their heart. And then from your own perspective, you're going to have so much more energy. Your brand is going to grow so much faster if it's rooted in purpose and your desire to make that human connection and make a difference. Absolutely. And that feels like a really important thing for you so in the book, it comes across very quickly. You talk about social mission. It's a lovely stat. And what's the stat where you say that people spend more money on ice cream than they do on education? Yes. So this was actually from uh, Peter Singer, who wrote a book about the life you can save. And here's how it goes. Basically, we human beings spend about $59 billion a year on ice cream globally, collectively. And by the way, I love my gelato, mm-hmm. so this is nothing against us as humans. I've just come back from Rome. It, there you go. It's some there. really great yeah. gelato. Versus taking care of uh, the basic kind of human dignities in terms of education, sanitation, and health care for all human beings worldwide, which they put a price tag on that, of $28 billion per year. Mm. And so you kind of look at it, and when you see most of the problems like that in terms of uh, extreme poverty and hunger, uh, the water crisis, it's not a matter of our resources. We have the resources to handle some of these big, big challenges. It's a matter of will. And it's a matter of focus and us collectively working to figure things out. And so that was actually another reason that I really wanted to write this book, because I feel like we're going to need the activation of the full diversity of talents and gifts of every human being on the planet in order to solve some of our bigger collective issues. And I feel really confident that I'm doing the work that I was put on this planet to do. But I know there are so many more people out there that have tremendous skills and ideas and people, you know, there's kids right now, right, that are in the educational system that if their parents or somehow they get their hands on this book and they start believing that everything is figure outable, if their skill sets align with helping to solve some of these bigger issues, I really think we can do it. So I have a lot of hope in that respect. And as a company, in terms of our social mission, I've always been ambitious, And I've always wanted to earn a lot of money. We tell a story about that in the book. It's not about me wanting nice shoes or wanting nice material things. I see money as a tool to support goodness in the world. Mm -hmm. And even on an interpersonal level, it's tied to my parents' divorce. I always saw the lack of money meant more stress and taking away of love. And so I made this little equation when I was little. I was like, okay, I want to make so much money when I get older that I can use it to help heal. And I can use it to help take care of others. And so as a business, we're always looking for ways to use our platform and whether that's our voice, our, you know, the audience that we've built or our financial resources to help solve some of the issues that are out there because we've got a lot. Nice. And likewise, by inspiring people to be doing the work that they do. Yes. Then you've got all these other people who are making a difference in the world doing doing their thing too, right? Yeah, we do that a lot in B-School. In fact, in Module 1, it's a big thing about getting rooted in your purpose and also teaching people that you don't need to write big checks to make a difference. There are so many different ways as an entrepreneur, um, even when you're first starting out, to root in a deeper purpose. You know, there's you can do pro bono work. You can do um, kind of partnerships with people in terms of awareness. Like, there's just so many different ways that you can tie a business to a 
social mission, still be a for-profit business, but have it even more rooted in purpose and heart, which again, only drives up your, your own energy and your own desire to keep it going. Absolutely. My, my, this first part of my career actually was in um, promoting volunteering. I was a volunteer doing loads of stuff and then I kind of fell into then promoting that. And I've always kind of tried to, as I've been in the working world, try to keep keep going some kind of volunteering, whether it's a hands-on thing, whether it's sitting on boards. and yeah. But even when I was at my busiest, I always kind of um, tried to make sure I had some of that stuff going on. And, and I've always been pretty su- successful at keeping that going. But I always feel like it's never uh, a sort of binary choice of do I spend time building the business or am I spending time over here helping other people? I kind of feel like the volunteering that I do always teaches me stuff that helps me with the business and kind of like it, it like it kind of feeds itself back in by symbiosis right it's not like a kind of uh, give take or either or kind of equation absolutely yeah um let's talk about a couple of the other things you've done then so um uh being on the floor of the new york stock exchange yes uh, surrounded by, did you say 98% men in the book? What was the stat? Uh, you, you, 99.9. Like, yeah, I right, really yeah. did not see another female, to be quite honest <laughs> right. with you. It was like, mm, they weren't there. And you were at the start of your career, yes. young and ambitious. And so what was that environment like? And I'm imagining... Quite sexist. It's I, Yeah, I was imagining it was quite a sexist, difficult environment it for a, a lone female. So what were your, what's your survival... Uh, technique toolkit around that well I didn't really you know that was my first time in an environment like that because it was my first uh, real job out of school and I was just trying to navigate you know I was trying to figure out my place I wanted to be taken seriously like most of us do when we're first starting out and uh, it was just a lot of getting hit on and you know basically the culture there and of course this wasn't every single person but this was kind of a broad generalization and certainly my own personal experience was the bell rings at 4 p.m. You know, it's like time to hit the strip clubs, do lines of coke. It was just, that, that was the habit. It didn't matter yeah. if it was Monday, a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Like this was just the culture there. And I just remember every time like trying to build relationships and understand and ask questions, it always came back with basically a proposition like, oh, we should go here. Let's go out on a date. And I'm just like, this sucks. Mm. And so I started trying to do some self-reflection. I'm like, you know, I have a lot of hair. I've always had a lot of hair and I said well maybe if I cut off all this hair (laughs) and look a little bit more like a boy maybe that would do the trick and so I got like a pixie cut that didn't work Um, and so I just didn't feel comfortable quite honestly and also I didn't feel like that was my career path you know there was this little voice inside that says this is not what you're meant to do this is not who you're meant to be and that was separate than the experience that we're just talking about so that was something independent so I was like you know I don't want to make it here and so after probably about six or eight months I I skedaddled Mm. Um, and then uh, I suppose the other thing to ask you about would be your so you've been very public about a couple of things that you've been really public about, which um, I think a lot of people struggle to uh, to be that honest and direct with. So uh, there was a bit where you talk about having couples therapy and the reason that you were in couples therapy is because you were working so many hours yes. and that was causing a real strain on your relationship. And I feel like a lot of people would struggle to admit that publicly. Oh, I mean, um, well, I have no problem with that. First of all, I feel like all of us, I never pretend to be Moses coming down from the mountain. Uh, right. Like I am very, very clear yeah. that I do not have all the answers in life. I don't think any one person does. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of my own approach, like I'm a lifelong student. I love learning. I'm always testing and experimenting with things. And I'm always trying to make things better in every sense. And so for a while, you know, starting a business is really hard. And there was a particular chunk in my relationship uh, with Josh. We've been together 16 going on 17 years now. And there was a period of time where I was just, man, I was cranking because I come from a really uh, roots of like a very powerful work ethic. And before we even met, I had been on a train for years of working seven days a week, you know, trying to get the coaching business up. I had my career in dance and fitness. I was bartending waiting tables. So that kind of habit was very well set in. And then when the business actually started to work, then there's all these new challenges that come along. And we just got to a point where we had been together for seven years and not once taken an actual vacation as a couple. So we had traveled together, but it was either like a speaking engagement or he's an actor. So there was maybe a film premiere. Like whenever we traveled, it was work, 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 work still. And so um, he got to a point where he was just kind of done. 
And he was like, I don't, I don't even know why we're together. <laughs> like, like, it just, it was bad. Mm. And for me, I come back to everything is figureoutable. In my heart, I didn't feel like this relationship was complete. I felt like we were just in a really rough place. And so, you know, couples therapy and just working on it, we, we were able to resurrect it. But I just saw very clearly that I was completely addicted to work and was not prioritizing time with my relationship you know and if that was really important to me I needed to switch how I was spending my time so I did and I mean I don't think any relationship is easy I think relationships are one of the best places that we can go to really grow as human beings and again being together 16 years you're going to have some up and downs yeah very true what did that teach you about work-life balance so you said you made changes since oh definitely well it taught me to pay closer to attention to just the fact that uh, in and this is very specific to us like to to pay greater attention to when i notice josh really needs my full attention and to just put also some boundaries in place in terms of you know when it's time to shut the laptop like shut the laptop or just even having better communication strategies in place like hey babe you know we're in b school time for example and we actually do this in our company where everyone tells their significant others like hey this like eight week period is going to be a little bonkers mm-hmm. you know we did this around <laughs> the book launch too is yeah. like hey let's put these little dates in the book so that these are sacred times for us to be together and connect amidst a huge promotional time which is mm. probably going to have me working longer hours jumping on the phone on weekends so how can we stay in touch and communication so that we retain our intimacy and I don't have to sacrifice or feel like I'm being pulled in multiple directions and we've been able to again later stage in our relationship navigate that really really well nice yeah um, and you've talked about having the conscious decision to not have kids as well. Yes. Um, so tell me about that. And is that, um, is that, do you feel like, because a lot of people have kids because they feel like it's sort of their legacy to pass on to the next generation. Absolutely. Is that because you feel like you, you have enough of a legacy so with he, your work and what you do? Like what's the, what's the relationship? There? Yeah. So it's an interesting topic because the, the reason I, I actually did a Marie TV episode on this. And if anyone listening, you can just Google search Marie Forleo, you know, um, how did you decide not to have kids? We'll put a link in the show notes. It's, too it's, well, it's a yeah. good one. Yeah. And we, we had a lot of fun with it too, because I've also just, I've had people say some interesting things to me over the years of, oh, you're going to change your mind and you don't know what you're talking about and you're going to die alone and just like this whole range <laughs> of just strange things. But here's the truth. Someone had asked in my audience, like, hey, I want to know how you came to that decision. And my answer was this, it was never a decision for me. Mm. I've always known since I was a little girl that I didn't want kids. It's just, you know, if I look out at the landscape of my life, every single thing that I've wanted to explore or experience or strive to achieve, I do. And anything that I don't have in my life is because I don't really want it. And I feel like a significant decision, like bringing another human being into the world, is something that one should want more than anything else. You know, and so I just believe in this world we should respect people's choices. You know, so I have so many um, moms on my team. And so many moms and parents in B school. And, you know, we have more than enough resources to help people understand how to navigate their life. But in terms of this choice for me, it wasn't, a ch- it was never a choice. It's just me honoring my truth. And I'm also a stepmom. So Josh had a son and he came into my life when he was nine. And so I have that parenting experience, which has actually been quite perfect for me, mm-hmm. you know? And, yeah. and um, so I just think overall, it's like we really need to respect people's choices, uh, whatever that they want to do. And for me, it's just like, I give birth to ideas. I give birth to my business. I give birth to possibilities and other people. I'm very, very clear that that is my role on this earth in this particular incarnation. And, you know, I'm like, just respect my choices. I respect yours. There's always the joke, too, that books are harder to give birth to children <laughs> as well. Right? Uh, so. We did. I mean, I, I did a, a thing when the book came out on September 10th. We actually had quite a bit of fun. I learned from the women on my team that uh, sometimes when women have babies, they do what's called a sip and see. 
where they have their friends over and colleagues over and they have their baby in like a beautiful crib and everyone kind of sits around and talks about what the process was like and you get to meet the baby. And I said, wouldn't it be fun if we did a sip and see for the book? So one of the gals on my team swaddled the book in a blanket. We put like a pink bow on her and we did this whole Instagram live. And I just had, I was like, hey, if you guys have questions about giving birth to a book baby, let me know. We're like, okay, she's 1.1 ounces and she's 9.6 inches. We just, we, it was so much fun. But um, yeah, it's like, why can't we celebrate uh, giving birth to our creative projects just like we celebrate giving birth to human beings? Yeah. Uh, well, that's a lovely note to start to wrap things up on. The final question I've got for you is uh, you have collaborated with Oprah a couple yes. of times and I couldn't uh, have you here and not just say, what's Oprah like? Tell, oh. me, tell me a story about Oprah. She, well, first of all, um, like many people, she's even better in person, right. you know, yeah. and uh, like many of us, we've grown up watching her and admiring her. She is so warm. She is so fun. She is so down to earth. I think one of my favorite memories was after we did um, Super Soul Sessions, which was uh, the Everything is Figureoutable talk at UCLA. Yeah. They had all of us, the folks that spoke that day and the production team um, in for kind of like a dinner afterwards to celebrate. And uh, one of my favorite memories is like Oprah coming through this room with some folks flanked on either side of her with the little shots of tequila and just getting to do like a shot of tequila with Oprah it's just a really really fun thing and um, yeah so she's really she's just incredibly gracious and down to earth it's like when you're sitting next to her there was a brunch too it's just like do you like your eggs I'm like yeah I really like my eggs like she's just cool she's a legend does Oprah have to go around and do that to lots of groups and as a result she has to have like 20 shots of tequila over the course of No, I just happen to be in the lucky group where we all, you know, the whole room did shots at once and I happened to be near her yeah. when that was happening. Um, no, no, no. It was more of just a, a fun moment and as you know, tequila is one of the only drinks that's not a depressant so people yeah. got that little yeah, yeah. fun buzz and that was it. Nice. Um, it reminds me of there's a story of, um, you know, Ricky Gervais, the comedian yes. and he tells this story about how very early on in his fame he went to this party and he was stood next to Alan Yentoff, the head of the BBC, and Salman Rushdie. And the three of them are having a chat and it's like, you know, Alan Yentoff rises. All right, Salman. All right, Alan. How's it? And he's privy to, the, to being in this world. And then he goes home and then he goes to, you know, to talk to his wife in bed, his partner in bed. And um, she's like, what did you do today? And he just went, ah, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Just thought it was really nice. Um, so uh, the book is Everything is Figureoutable. Yes. Um, do you want to just give people uh, the very myriad of ways that they can, can uh, connect with you and uh, find out more about what you're up to? Oh, absolutely. So in terms of the book, we've got some extra resources that didn't actually make it in. You can go to everythingisfigureoutable.com to find those. Um, MarieForleo.com, M-A-R-I-E-F-O-R-L-E-O is where we have hundreds of free episodes of Marie TV and the Marie Forleo podcast. And then on social, as of this moment, we are in the fall of 2019. I'm having the most fun on Instagram, but all the social channels are at Marie Forleo. Yeah, and uh, it will be too late when people check this out to see your Instagram story of you dancing in the. Uh, oh, it won't be too episode. late. Is that is that on the normal video? That's on the Did grid. I see that on the. Oh, that's on the grid. Okay, oh, so, cool. absolutely. So go check out Marie dancing in the bookstore um, in the uh, sweet store. In the yeah, candy store. we're actually dancing um, in front of the the Barnes and Noble in New York City right, as well. So yeah, if you just yeah. scroll on the grid, you will have some fun. Dancing is one of the ways for me, and when it comes to productivity, when it yeah. comes to staying rooted in my energy, and um, also just having a fulfilling and fun life it's one of the best tools there is cool and what's what's next for the rest of your day in london a lot more press actually mm, okay. more press which is great um some radio tonight and then tomorrow night we have a uh, quite a big event at westminster hall the conference center that they have there we've got a little under two thousand people coming in yeah well there's two thousand people sitting in a room so i would just feel very grateful to have uh, had an hour of your time so thanks so much for ha- being on beyond busy and for having me and good luck with the rest of the visit thank you so much So thanks to Marie for being on the show. Thanks also to Leo at Penguin for helping me to set that up. And also thanks to Mark Stedman, my producer for the show with Podient and also Think Productive, which is my company and also the sponsors of the show. If you're interested in productivity workshops for your team, just go to thinkproductive.com. We have everything from helping you to get your email inboxes to zero, fix meetings and just be a bit more like a productivity ninja. So if that's of interest, go to thinkproductive.com and you'll find out more there. 
Um, I am on uh, a bit of a mad one, finishing off this meetings book that I'm doing with one of Think Productive's ninjas, Hayley Watts, who I'm going to get on the podcast, actually. That would be a good one. We'll get Hayley to uh, to come on and maybe talk about meetings in the run-up to publication of that book. Uh, the book has a working title, Fixing Meetings, although we're not like 100% wedded to that. We're kind of thinking we might change it. Uh, but yeah, it's been um, actually a really long slog for this book. It just feels like it's one that's really taken some heavy lifting to get it right. And we've had a couple of um, uh, kind of back and forths with my editor at Icon Books to really just kind of hone it and um, get the structure right and all that kind of thing. And I think we're there. We're getting there. Uh, but it's been a long one. And uh, it's just meant a lot of time for me kind of hold up in the shed here in Brighton, just, you know, frantically typing away and just spending a lot of time looking at screens and um, brainstorming on pieces of paper and feeling stuck and then feeling inspired and then thinking it's awful then thinking it's great. And, you know, it just kind of goes in cycles like that. So yeah, it's been a, a, a busy one over the last few weeks. And um, the other thing I've been really focused on since September is keynotes. I've just seemed to have just had this kind of glut of um, new clients and keynote bookings come in, including a really cool one a couple of weeks ago in Rome, which was on a Friday. So it meant that I got to spend the whole weekend in Rome and uh, really look around. I'd never been to Rome, actually. And um, honestly, what an amazing city. It's one of those places where you look back on it and you go, how have I got to the age of 41 and never been to Rome? You know, uh, but really, if you've never been, just a super inspiring, interesting uh, place to spend a weekend or a few days and uh, rounded off my uh, baseball watching for the year with a trip to the States and um, watched a few Toronto Blue Jays games and then watched a few other games, including the game where the Washington Nationals clinched their place in the playoffs. And they're now in the World Series, so they could go and win the whole thing. Uh, so I feel like I was uh, there to witness a little bit of history. So if you're a baseball geek, that'll make loads of sense to you. And if you're not, then just won't. Sorry about that, but I'm just telling you what I've been up to. And uh, if you want to find out more about what I'm doing, the best place to reach me is probably Instagram at the moment. So just at Graham Alcott on Instagram. I am on the Twitter and we will share this stuff on the Twitter, but like it's not really me. It's uh, mainly Caitlin at Think Productive who does the Twitter stuff for me because uh, I just stopped loving Twitter uh, for various, various reasons that are probably obvious to many of you. Um, so yeah, I'd love you to uh, make contact. Let me know what you're up to. Let me know how, how I can help. Um, so you can just DM me on Instagram and I'll um, I'll definitely, definitely reply to that. Or you can just drop me an email, just graham at thinkproductive.co.uk if you want to connect that way. Uh, if you've got ideas, if you want to say hi, if you've read my new work fuel book with Colette Hennigan, uh, which came out a, a few months ago, Productivity Ninja's Guide to Nutrition. I've had some really amazing feedback on that book, just people saying, hey, this has changed my life. I've lost weight, which was actually not the intention of the book, but, you know, hey, if uh, that's something you want to do and you did it through my book, then fine. Um, but it's really about how to eat to have the best energy for work and uh, really seems to be having some good results with people. So uh, would love to hear your thoughts on that and uh, go and buy it if you haven't already work fuel, the Productivity Ninja's Guide to Nutrition. Uh, but yeah, come say hi. Hi, would love to connect and uh, we'll be rolling again with a load more Beyond Busy episodes every couple of weeks. So until then, take care. Bye for now. 